Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now let's get to crypto. I've been waiting. Yeah. Marco Santori <laughs> joins us. He's the chief legal officer at Kraken. And Marco, it's interesting, you know, um, a lot of bears, Jamie Dimon among them, are, you know, continually ensuring the market, hey, you know what, the U.S. government's going to regulate this space. And it seems like the more it gets regulated, the higher the price climbs anyway. Is it really a bad thing if crypto is regulated? That's a that's a terrific question, and really like the perfect lens to view crypto regulation as it relates to the price. Listen, the price of crypto are the price of crypto is going to go up. It's just going to go up, and it's going to go up, and sometimes it's going to go down. But by and large, the reason why the price of crypto keeps going up is not because of a speculative frenzy. It's not because governments have been laying off. And once they do really crack down, it's going to get destroyed. The bottom is going to fall out. That is completely the wrong lens to view it. The right lens to view it is that this is a technological transformation, technological revolution. And unlike other technological revolutions, this one has a price ticker. That's the that's the that's the bottom line. Is that if you could if you could invest in the in in the very early days of ARPANET, right, the the the, the progenitor to the internet. Gosh, I mean, of course you would have done that. You know, the early days of the Internet had websites, right? You could buy and sell websites, but it was a highly inefficient market. It, it, it happened very slowly. It was largely insecure. The difference between what happened then and what's happening now is not that crypto was any less than the Internet. Actually, I think it will be, and it will be significantly more than the Internet. I think it's going to change every aspect of our financial lives. But the difference is that, well, this time there, there's, 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 there's financial opportunity all tied up in it for everyday people because these tokens, many of them work like functional goods. Um, and that's, that's a, that is not only a, a generational opportunity, I think it's a historical opportunity. So look, I wouldn't say jump in and buy a bunch of crypto because you think the, because you think the price is going to go up. That's, that's the wrong lens to view it through. You have to view this through what's really happening. This, right. This, this groundswell opportunity uh, in in terms of, of technological innovation. Marco, there's a, a new sheriff on Wall Street, if you will, in SEC Chair Gary Gensler. What do you know about him? What do you know about his views on crypto? Gary Gensler understands crypto, I think, better than better than most people. Um, you know, we, we, we keep open lines of communication uh, with regulators, even if they aren't our primary functional regulator. The SEC is not our primary functional regulator. They are not the primary functional regulator of um, any crypto exchanges in the U.S. Uh, that I'm aware of. But look, I mean, you don't need a microscope to, to figure out that, that, that they probably want to be. Uh, Gensler has said on a number of occasions that he believes that um, the protections required uh, for users of crypto exchanges are investor protections, not just consumer protections. Uh, and that would mean a real shift from uh, the kinds of regulation that applies to crypto exchanges today, 
which is primarily money transmitter regulation or the kind of regulation that, that, that you get when you walk into a money gram or a Western Union or something like that. He thinks it ought to be something different, something more, investor protection regulation. So all of the uh, pro- investor protection regulations that you talk about on this show every day, the kind of regulation that applies to broker-dealers, uh, national securities exchanges, investment advisors, uh, that, that sort of thing. So um, I think that's, that's where we're headed. Uh, it's not really a legal discussion yet, it's, it's, or at least it shouldn't be. It's, it's a policy discussion. It's a question of what kinds of regulation ought to apply uh, to crypto companies, exchanges, custodians, that sort of thing. And I, I don't think it's so easy uh, as, as to look at it and say, well, it, looked, it, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's got feathers, so let's call all these things broker-dealers and call it a day. I, I think that would be throwing the baby out with bathwater and missing a, an important opportunity to, to establish a regulatory regime that really works for crypto users. I wonder what it's like as a lawyer to deal with... Um, you know, an asset that doesn't have, you can't touch it, uh, doesn't exist other than as a line of code, and it doesn't have any um, intrinsic value or purpose other than to be, you know, worth money. Is it different than other kinds of IP, or do you just lump it all in uh, the same kind of basket? It's absolutely different. It's absolutely different. And I can tell you, as a lawyer who's practiced in this space since late 2012, that makes me aged, aged in this <laughs> industry. Um, let me let me tell you, it is it is it is the most fantastic opportunity to uh, to investigate to reinvestigate first principles of good regulation, to reinvestigate how 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 these laws were originally crafted to protect people, um, and. Uh, I got to tell you, it is a it is a terrific opportunity to to question why we have disclosure regimes, for example, just the most fundamental questions about how we how we protect uh, people and how we protect investors. You know, today we have these disclosure regimes um, that require companies who are issuers to tell the public about what the company's doing, so that people aren't caught off guard by by things that could uh, affect their financial futures. Do we need that for crypto? Well, we need something like it, maybe. But I mean, you can't ask a digital—you can't ask a, a computer protocol to publish 8Ks, right? Like there, that's never going to happen for Bitcoin, and it would be folly for government to require it. For some companies, though, or for for some protocols, there actually are companies behind them, and for them, well, I think we need to start what what a new disclosure regime looks like, what it really ought to look. All right. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Really interesting stuff. Marco Santori there from Kraken. Let's get a sense here on this market. We talk about the wall of worry, if you will, and there are many bricks in that wall of worry. Um, let's get a sense. And people are asking themselves, boy, is the next 10% move going to be up or down? And I think the camps are, it feels like it's fairly evenly dis, uh, dispersed there. Jeff Camarda, Chairman, CEO, and Portfolio Board Chair of the Camarda Wealth Advisory Group. He's also author of The Financial Storm Warning for Investors, How to Prepare and Protect Your Wealth from Tax Hikes and Market Crashes. Jeff, are you concerned about a significant pullback in this market? 
I think it's just inevitable. I mean, the market has been soaring, really floated up into space as the world burned since COVID, uh, COVID presented uh, in early 2020. So whether this is the beginning of it or it will continue and build trend for a bit longer, I'm not sure. But I think uh, sooner or later, we're in for quite a shock. So how do you, uh, especially tax hikes, I'm, I'm wondering, how do you protect your wealth from tax hikes? Is a lot of it regional? I notice you're in Florida. Well, I, th- I think, you know, the biggest spot certainly is, is federal. And there are so many dark forces that are really conspiring, I think, uh, to drive uh, really atrocious uh, wealth storm conditions. But protecting yourself from tax hikes really is a function of understanding tax law and what the opportunities for legal tax avoidance are. All right. So, Jeff, you're, you're really worried. You're concerned about a significant pullback in this market. What would be the catalyst for that in your mind? It really is hard to say. You know, right now we're still pretty much in greed mode and, and folks are buying, you know, supply and demand. And once sellers, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, outnumber uh, buyers and it flips. And it's, it's really hard to tell what the tipping point would be. Could it be an attack on Taiwan? You know, could it be an acknowledgement that, that inflation really is insidious and a lot worse than the Fed has led us to believe? There are so many different things that really could trigger it. But when it happens, uh, as it did, you know, in mid to uh, the third uh, quarter of 08, it, you know, it's pretty rapid. By the way, as a side note, everything lately is reminding me of 2034. You know that book by uh, Admiral Stravitas? Yep. So good. And uh, a, a Taiwan issue is, is one of the things that happens. I'm more concerned, um, well, let's say we're more focused on a daily basis on inflation and growth. What are your views on economic growth, you know, barring something like, you know, gray swan, black swan issue, like an attack on Taiwan? What, what are your views on growth and inflation in the U.S. economy right now? Well, I think inflation is a really big factor, right, and which is not fully acknowledged by, uh, by a lot of players. For instance, steel is up four times in a year. Four times. It's an important industrial input, right? And that's before you look at logistical problems. And you, know, you get the last count, there were 65 ships anchored off the L.A. port. You can't move the stuff. Uh, shipping costs have gone through the roof. Um, but to, to answer your question, you know, the economy still is, while some sectors are doing well and some countries have done okay, it's still very much in tatters, you know, and, and damaged in really unknowable ways. Um, and uh, eventually, I think that that, that that financial stress is going to throw into market prices. Jeff, how long have you had this view of markets here, this negative view of markets? And, and, and what do you tell your clients? What's your advice to your clients? I, I wrote the book Between Semesters at George, Georgetown Law last, uh, last Christmas, and uh, it really began to, um, to, you know, to be unclear to me as the COVID stock bubble floated up into space, right? The world catches fire in early 2020, and, and stock levels just go, you know, to incredible record highs. And you're starting to examine that. I wrote a piece for Forbes um, the, uh, probably about a year ago that, that got 100,000 hits, which is, you know, unusual for me. And it really focused, you know, on the various, uh, on the, uh, the various uh, factors. So what we tell clients is we've really gone – I've been a dyed-in-the-wolf fundamentalist, old CFA kind of uh, um, efficient markets guy uh, throughout my decades of training. But what happened with COVID really moved me. And, and why the, the world's on fire and stock prices go through the roof didn't make any sense. And that's really when we really started to examine what was going on and look at ways to, to, to develop countermeasures to protect our clients and, and to readers you know, from what we see as an inevitable but really devastating market pullback. And not just stocks, right? Bonds have got right. similar stresses. Well, you know what I think is interesting um, 
if you look in emerging markets, crypto has long had a draw just because their fiat currencies are, you know, can be boxed up and wheelbarrowed out and, and, and still be worthless. What do you think, though, about Bitcoin right now at $57,000 from a, from a U.S. perspective? It's difficult to justify the value, right? And also as a, as a, um, as a medium of exchange, you know, with a wildly volatile and fluctuating value. Um, uh, and, and there are also significant fraud. You know, how do you, by its very nature, it's really hard to, to, to identify who owns it. So I, I think that, that Not as that hard as gold. Sir? Not as hard as gold. <laughs> yeah. If I throw a gold bar on the floor, who owns that, you know? That's right, yeah. Well, it depends who gets to it first, I guess, right? Yeah, good, good point. I just always, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting that people are looking at it as a, as a hedge or a store of wealth, and it has, you know, no track record. And, and really no intrinsic value. I mean, it's worth yeah. what someone will pay for it. All right. In- interesting stuff. And of course, we could go on. I'd love to have you back on the program. So uh, appreciate you joining us, Jeff. Jeff Camerata there, chairman and CEO of Camerata Wealth Advisory Groups, talking to us about how to, well, he wrote a book about uh, the financial storm, warning for investors how to prepare and protect your wealth from tax hikes and market crashes. Now, let's bring in Sean Snyder, Head of Investment Strategy at City U.S. Consumer Wealth Management. Sean, great having you on the program. What are your biggest concerns looking at this market? Is it, is it Washington, D.C. Um, and, and, and uh, tax policy? Is it inflation? Is it the Fed? Is it earnings season? What, what, what's keeping you up at night, if anything? Uh, first off, thank you for having me. Uh, I guess all of those <laughs> are, are a good spot to start. Um, you know, the D.C. drama continues to kind of be an overhang on the market. Um, you know, I would like to think that, you know, this kicking the can down the road actually gives them more time to, um, you know, kind of solidify the party and finalize the details. But it's not clear whether, you know, no immediate crisis means no immediate action. Uh, and are we looking at an awkward Thanksgiving dinner yet again with Congress simply um, forcing the, the deadline issue to December 3rd in, in, instead of um, you know, October 18th? So I think that's an overhang, an uncertainty that weighs on the market. You know, history heavily suggests that they do get it done. I mean, the White House and Congress have acted uh, 98 times since the end of World War II to modify the debt limit. They've always done it. Seems like they'll get it done again. Um, you know, likewise, as far as the budget reconciliation bills and infrastructure, uh, 21 out of 25 uh, reconciliation bills have went on to be signed by the president. So still a very heavy lift to get the uh, Biden agenda off the ground. But, you know, I think they should be able to do it. The other thing with D.C. that's interesting is by delaying it, they actually give the Treasury Department more time to kind of uh, bolster their extraordinary measures. So, um, it's possible that the soft deadline for the debt ceiling is now December 3rd, but if they can bolster those extraordinary measures, then maybe uh, the actual hard debt ceiling deadline is maybe in t- well into 2022. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. And the other things you've mentioned, probably the biggest thing I'm hearing about on the street is this notion of stagflation, where we get persistent inflation and weaker than expected economic growth. And there are some signs that supply chain issues are, are causing problems. Um, if you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP Now tracker, 
it's at just 1.3% for the third quarter. Um, I, I think that would surprise most investors if that's what actually happens. Uh, and we get that report October 28th, which is, of course, just before the Fed meeting on November 3rd, where it's widely expected they will begin to taper bond purchases. Uh, I think, importantly, uh, most of this slowing is probably related to supply chain issues. Um, if you look at leisure and hospitality wages, they're up 10.8%. That still suggests there's demand for workers. Um, Just 4% of small businesses are reporting that poor sales are their most important problem. Uh, And we have 2.8 million more job openings than unemployed. So it seems to suggest that we're seeing a slowing due to these supply chain issues, but the demand is still there and the economy should um, snap back once these ease. So we're about to uh, kick off third quarter earnings season, Sean. What are you looking for uh, over the next uh, several weeks here as we hear from uh, some of the the larger companies? Sure. I I think we'll see a pretty good earnings season. Uh, S&P 500 earnings per share expected to rise about 28% year on year. Uh, A couple of things that people will be watching is they'll see probably see normalization uh, in the earnings of so-called value companies. Uh, we saw a massive surge in the second quarter for financials and energy in some of those. Um, value company earnings rose 187% in the second quarter. Uh, that's unlikely to repeat. It's likely to come down to maybe 27 28%, something along those lines. So we'll be watching that. Uh, and then people are going to be watching very closely any comments about margin pressures. Uh, and you're going to want to see if these companies can pass on uh, these increased costs or input costs onto consumers or not. Um, you know, it looks like maybe industrials and retail companies may not be as able to pass on those costs as some of the other ones. So investors will uh, probably be watching that closely. What do you think about um, hedges? You know, gold hasn't been performing the way you might have expected it to. Inflation, either even if you don't, even if you're not afraid of it, you might want to hedge a little bit against it. H- how do you do that? Well, in some ways, you can actually use the energy sector and the financial sector as a hedge against higher interest rates. And that's what we've seen almost all year long. Financials is the second top performing sector, energy the number one performing sector. Uh, And those two sectors tend to do well when interest rates rise. So if we believe that interest rates are going to rise because we're seeing more persistent inflation, uh, the Fed is about to potentially taper on November 3rd, then, then those are good hedges against that trade. Um, other things you can do is more of like a longer-term you know, goal or, or change in your portfolio is to shift over to higher-quality companies, companies that have really strong revenue growth and earnings growth, um, even in times of more mid-cycle-type um, conditions where the economy is kind of slowed down from its initial reopening. And healthcare shares are a great example of that. They're really, really stable revenue growth. Um, so we're looking at higher-quality companies, um, strong revenue, strong balance sheets, uh, and then also companies with high dividends and their ability to grow dividends. Those types of companies do better as you move into this more mid-cycle type condition. So that's what we're telling our clients to do. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time here. Sean Snyder, Head of Investment Strategy for City U.S. Consumer Wealth Management, uh, giving us uh, his sense of this market. Again, we've got earnings really kicking off in earnest Tomorrow, we'll get the banks uh, this week at the big banks. And obviously, we always like hearing what the bank management teams are saying about their customers and loan demand and just business conditions. And of course, we'll have full earnings coverage over the next several weeks. This is Bloomberg. 
All right, Renia uh, Sedham, managing partner, Sedham Law Group, joins us here, and it great, great timing. As we think about, just looking at the news this morning, John Gruden, uh, the uh, coach of wow. the, uh, Las Vegas. We can't even talk about that. Raiders, I mean, you know, kind of. It's bad. It, yeah, it's, it's bad. Some bad emails there, and it kind of goes to the, you know, the workplace and behavior and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and the toxicity of that workplace. And so, Ronnie, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, it seems like, you know, you look at some of these big companies like Blue Origin, Amazon, Tesla, some real issues about the workplace and toxicity of that workplace in today's environment. Give us a sense of kind of how you think this, this situation is developing across corporate America. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. I, I don't necessarily think this is developing across America. I think we're hearing about it now. I think yep. these issues have been um, sort of swept under the rug previously, and now uh, victims have been finding their voice and going through the process that they need to go through in order to seek some kind of redress. So what... Is is there a line you can draw between things that uh, you definitely can't say with colleagues or other people in your in your business or your industry, and things that you say you know to your friends in a private group or as you know President Trump would have said the locker room for example. Wh wh where's that line? You know the line is blurring on a daily basis. You have to be careful about what you're saying and just ask yourself before you make your comment, what is the rationale behind your comment? Some people say things uh, that are meant to be a joke and that could be okay depending on the receiving end, right? Does this person with whom you're speaking think it's a joke outside of the workplace? But sometimes people say things and they don't care about the consequence of what they're saying. For example, in this letter that was written by the Blue Origin employees and former employees, there was someone who, who actually stated, you should ask my opinion because I'm a man. That type of, I guess, uh, statement should not really be permitted to be said in the workplace, at the very least, because men and women should be treated equally. And while there are various levels of intellect across the board, men are not smarter than women. Women are not smarter than men. It is on a you know, individualized basis. And to just insult an entire group of people, it, it's not just offensive. It's also illegal. You cannot have discriminatory animus in the workplace. It's just that simple. Ronnie, what do you advise your corporate clients to do here? I mean, is, is there... Are there some best practices that some corporations or some companies or some entities are doing that perhaps should be adopted by more or others? Yes, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. I don't know how widespread these best practices are. Certainly when I work with my uh, employer clients, we discuss it. And the first thing is to ask yourself, why is this happening? Was it just, you know, a, one bad actor or actress? If so, you know, terminating that person is sufficient, but usually it's not just one actor, actress. Usually it's a group of people. So you need to address that in the workplace 
and figure out why these individuals are being hired. What kind of questions are you asking during the interview to help mitigate misogyny and gender discrimination? What kind of messaging and training are you providing to employees after someone is terminated because of an you know alleged harassment or actual harassment? It's not enough to simply send out an APB or, or a notice company-wide that says, so-and-so is no longer with us. Of course, you don't need to delineate the specifics in that communication, but there should be other communications afterwards that tell people, you know, when someone is terminated because of discrimination, we are going to determine whether or not that person was aided and abetted by others in the workplace. We're not going to stop at just simply you know, giving out hush money to the victim mm. and firing the uh, person who was alleged to have done X or Y. That is normally not enough. And then what measures are you taking uh, to be proactive to protect the confidentiality of those individuals who complain? Because that is also a fear that I, you know, often hear about from others. I didn't want to go to HR because I was worried I would lose my job. I didn't want to go to HR because I was worried that they wouldn't keep it confidential. Well, these are, you can train employees in HR on how to maintain confidentiality because I think from my practice, I see that they often don't understand what that really means. Right. Well, it's very important stuff, and we really appreciate you joining us to talk about it. Rania Sedholm, they are managing partner at the Sedholm Law Group, talking to us about uh, workplace toxicity. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.